0: Hey, welcome to Uppity Women. And this is part two of my conversation with Andrea Zekas. But technically it's it's part three because I recorded a second conversation with her and then I went to edit it and there was nothing there. So we had to re-record the second interview. And then when I went to edit it, I discovered that lo and behold, the second recording actually was there. So our fake sponsor this week is a podcast producer, an editor, someone who can do this stuff for me so that it's done right the first time. And there is another guest I spoke with for almost two hours and um, I'll be telling them that it really did disappear so you know just fun with technology and I'm figuring this out so bear with us it'll get better as we go along but what is already good are the conversations that I'm having with people and I can't wait to publish all of these uh, talks are just they've been great a lot of fun and I always learn a lot so it's. I'm excited to share them with you. But in the meantime, uh, listen to part two of Andrea. As always, we are being serenaded by Daryl Sean. You can find him on Bandcamp and it's D-A-R-Y-L-S-H-A-W-N. I link to him in the show notes, so you can always find him that way.
1: And start with our tech. Um, oh actually, I'm sorry. Let's start with the um. Let's start with the highway department. So we had run yeah, through sure? the first time we talked. All right. We had kind of run through your your process of coming out while you were at the state job. Yeah. Can you start talking about that? Sure. Sure.
2: So I mean, like it it started at from a point like I mean I, I have to go back to where I was at that time where I was when I started at the highway department. I was my it was just pre-transition. I had not transitioned yet. I was in a part of my life where I was searching for things that uh, would bring me joy. I was reconduing my life, basically. You know, mm-hmm. re- I was basically trying to to tidy up my life, make sure I was doing the things that brought me, brought me happiness and uh, having an opportunity to go work at the highway department as a cartographer and working in geographic information systems. So the mapping work and you know, I was, I've had a long relationship with maps. It was one of the things I wanted to do since I was a little kid. I was so excited about this and they were going to let me go over there and work for them. I did not have a degree in this. Uh-huh. I, but I had an interest. I, I was a mapping nerd. I, I, I displayed competency on the things I was I was going to be doing. And so they said, yeah, let's let her, no, let's let me do this work at the time I was a him, but it was just pre-transition. So, I mean, so I started there and then, as I was going through my time there, I realized that you know I made my life really happy, but I was really miserable. I had just turned I had just turned 30. So this is about 10 years ago. So I'm about to turn and, 40 by the way.
1: In this period, you you were not happy. You knew that you weren't living an honest or
2: an I wasn't authentic living an life. authentic life. Yes.
1: Right. But you yes. you had not yet started transitioning in your personal life at this time. Is that correct? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. So, but I was about to crack, you know, it's like, you know, that there's those things inside of you that say you need to do something and then you're trying to hold things in place. And I try to be who I needed to be for all the people in my life. And they wanted me to be this one person, but I knew I needed to be somebody else. Uh, you know, really cleaning out your closet, you know, the closet is a good metaphor for this because I basically had to take all those things I put inside my closet and just throw it out there for everyone to choose from. So over the summer, I had, you know, had a breakdown where I just realized it's like that this is really what it is. It really came down to my gender. Um, But then what I was going to do, what was going to do to, well, how was, how was it going to affect my relationship with my marriage and how was it going to affect my life at work? And so um I took it to the advice of friends of mine who were as I started the process of coming out and meeting people um going to therapy things like that i I befriended a person who uh was who was transgender who had came out at, for at a state agency in Arkansas and had a terrible experience and from that experience, I was like, Wow, there is the risk that I could lose my job, and that's what stood in my way for the entire time like I would come out to my family, my friends my then spouse, all these people in my life, but I held out on coming out at work. And because I heard that story of Mm -hmm. someone who came out of work, wanted to live openly and work openly, I just wanted to be part of everybody else, but they just were not being included. They were being, the people treated them differently. And uh, they ended up having to leave because they've, it was issues over things like the bathroom. They couldn't find a restroom in the facility that they could use.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, or when that would be appropriate. I think they were given a single restroom to use, but they were being singled out from everybody else. And so I didn't, I was afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid I was going to lose my job. I just got this job I had. It was with my dream job at the time. And I was afraid I was going to lose it. So I held out. And so, in the middle of that process, i have started to transition. I started to take hormones and all these changes started to happen in my life. I started to look different my hair grew out my my skin uh became a lot more um feminine my my presentation looked more feminine mm-hmm. and suddenly by uh the next summer like summer of twenty ten my i you, i could Pass for both a woman and for a, as a man. It just depends. It's just put on different clothes, and that's who I was. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was becoming very aware that I needed to have allies in the workplace, someone I can talk to, because I had to have the process, start the process of coming out. I need to have people to be my support people. So I I talked to my friend Jordan, and I um, and I had the process of just like trying to grow, put the words in her mouth until so she's just like, okay, I know you're you're transitioning. It's like okay. And so we tried to scheme, me and my uh, people who I know are my support people were trying to support me to come and tell my, my supervisor about it. Well, at the same time, I knew there were people who were looking at me from a distance. This was like something's up with that person, mm-hmm. you know, and so all the stuff, all those rumor mill stuff that's happening. Uh, ultimately, what happened was one day in one day I just said, it's like, OK, this is going to go in and tell. I'm going to tell my boss cuz there's no other option. I I've, I've I've waited on this. My my body's made change over changes over the course of like 9 months of taking hormones and I have to go do something about it because now I there's no point. I'm hitting the point of no return. Uh when I went in to talk to my employer, I think she was recognizing that there was changes going on with me. Went up and talked to the people at the at the Department of Transportation. So people were in um, HR offices and things like that. What was going on? And so when I was ready to go into that room, when I told her what I was what was going on in my life, she says like, "It's okay. I I know what's going on." It says, "And it's okay. We know that you're transitioning, and we know that's okay." And I was like shocked, absolutely so shocked. She so knew. She
1: had making. I mean, everyone was observing this happening.
2: Yeah. So what had happened was her father worked with the person who I had gotten the advice from about not coming out of the workplace and heard the story of how this person was not given a fair chance, heard those stories. And so it went throughout the household about that. And so when she saw it happening to me, she knew I was a good employee and she knew my work was valued. I was getting I, I received a merit raise. You know, I was a, an integral part of that office, and they've done a really—they did a really good job of trying to make me part of the team. That she didn't want to lose me, mm. and so she just recognizes it's like, you know, you're just going to be like everybody else. You're not going to be stirring up any problems. That she knew I was a good person, and she knew I had things to bring to the workplace, and so she went the best for me. The HR office there, there found all the best practices to how to address some of these issues about things like the restrooms or um, how to. Uh, deal with the coming out process in the workplace. And they worked with me the entire time. So I just took, I let them take the lead. And at that time I was thinking, you know, I had already gone in there and changed my, I've gone to the courthouse and changed my name. And I uh, was changing my documents. And so I put myself in a position where I had to go change those things. But I I did that for the case that if I did get fired, that I can already have something in my resume to say, this is who, I did this job, I did this. And so I would already have a work history. So I would, I tried to protect myself, but it turned out to be a lot of stress that was not necessary, but but reasonable.
1: So I guess what I'm curious about, and you probably can't answer this question, is if she had not had that experience with the family member uh, who works with the the other person, yeah, is, I wonder if, if she would have reacted the same to you? I I think, you know, sometimes things are kind of meant
2: to be, you right. know, and um, I'm very fortunate that someone actually had a history and would recognize that this was the case. And, you know, when you have someone who is talented and has skills, you just don't want to lose them. I mean, we're kind of facing that right now with our military you know, we have, we're talking about removing transgender people from the military and, you know, now you have people who've spent this period of time who have worked alongside transgender people and sometimes they're, they have the skills, you know, they have the, the, these schools, these necessary skills and we're investing money into them. We don't want to lose them just for the sake of this. If they're able to serve right now, why can't they serve in the future? Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of the same thing. I think she recognizes like, you know, this person has skills and talents, but then she was also I guess you're right. I mean she was allowed to be more open about it because she was able to see that oh really this person is being picked on because of nothing that's related to their work performance. You know, and we really want to make this a place that, you know, unlike other places in people's lives that work is a place where people from all backgrounds, all creeds, cultures sexes, life experiences all come together and work together. And we, and diversity in the workforce is valued. I mean, that mm-hmm. you want to have people who have different perspectives. You want to have people who bring different things to the table. Ultimately, that's what I kind of was sold to after, after a while I said like that, just for the sake of having me there, that the people there were enlightened, that they were able to um, have me in that space. And, and ultimately, ultimately, I got a, a memorandum at the end that said that, that, that the department supported my transition. Which yeah, at twenty, which is which at twenty ten, yeah. you know, is a rather um, in in Arkansas is in Arkansas. a rather it's a huge thing. This is before any of the recent um, advocacy on transgender rights. This is before President Obama said the word transgender. This is before any of the protections when it comes to the workplace. In fact, I don't when I it was my last year when it became official that the Highway Department. Department of Transportation had to put um, gender identity protections in there you know, because they would do contract with, this, with the federal government. It was until last year. But until then, they were very supportive and they knew that they saw what the language in the law was. It says like, hey, this is, you know, sex discrimination. We can't, you know, I'm based on sex stereotypes, we have to allow space for this to happen. We don't want to have, you know, whatever was going to happen to me. And if they didn't make it safe for me, it's going to... Have ripple effects over everyone else and the morale in the workplace.
1: Were you, you know, prepared over t- for a legal fight if if that had been necessary? I guess I would have. Is done. that something you thought about?
2: It's something I thought about, but but then you think about it also afterwards. It's just like, do you really want to go back to the place where you've actually had a legal fight? Because ultimately, that's what you're asking. Is, is like, I want to be let back into my job.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I wouldn't want to go anywhere I wasn't wanted. You know, I was fortunate that that the Department of Transportation was accepting. But I, I think because of how um, open they were and understanding they were, and that they valued my work, I think at that time they got to see beyond It's was like, you know what, is this, this really a reason for getting rid of this person? And the advice that she gave me afterwards, my supervisor was like, you know, if you, after three months, no one's going to remember this or all can know you as Andrea. And you know what, she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. Yes, there were some folks who had issues with the restroom. And ultimately, what we said is like, that I have the ability to use the restroom. They were going to fill in the gaps in the doors, like on the, on the stall doors. But I don't know why there should be those big gaps anyway on the stall doors. Right. I think everyone should have those anyway. Don't you want to have right. privacy? Yes. I mean, so I mean, I think I did people a service by coming out because they put in those, those things in the door, but it allowed those people had an issue, they can go elsewhere there was always an answer for it if if your problem if it was a problem with you not with me it's not my problem i, did, I was not creating a problem the problem was in the individual that individual can go to another room can go elsewhere you know and now we're seeing more and more single use restrooms being being the thing that people want to put in so the new annex and the recent annexes that have been added to the campus have single use restrooms that anyone can use. You know, you you confront an issue, something happens, people think about it differently. It's just like, you know what? Maybe we should really do about do something about this and it changes things and these culture changes. And my time there has kind of brought about a cultural change. I believe there were equal numbers of men and women who were supportive of my transition. There are people who want to have open conversations. There are people who really value my work. I think they really liked how... Before I transitioned, I was very shy and didn't open up and was very quiet. And afterwards, I became someone who was a lot more open and gregarious and really warm and really caring. And uh, and afterwards, I also wanted to make myself uh, invaluable. So I would volunteer for things or participate in events and things. I wanted to be seen as a, a part of the group. I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to make it so it was going to be harder for me to leave. And when I left the highway department, um, they... Um, said if they would recommend me for rehire. So if anything, if I ever wanted to go back and work for them, they would be welcoming to take me back. So it was a very, it was a very positive experience. And when I, because I was able to keep that job, it allowed me to stay here in Arkansas. Otherwise, I probably would have left. date. Then it just made me think about like what was, what would my life be like here, and oh, what kind of things I want to do. And I was just so happy to be doing the job I loved and being here and that job afforded me the opportunity to just focus on myself. I got to, I had an income to really take care of my transition and my needs for my transition. And I had folks I could work with. I'm like, Hey, if I need to go have a procedure done, can FMLA cover it? So family leave. I said, yeah. You know, all these other things we were trying to figure out, they would have people to work with. And it just made my life so much easier. And I could just focus on being me for a while because I was so focused on being somebody else. I didn't have enough time to think about me. And so I took those first few years of my transition just to not, I didn't jump into doing a lot of activism. I didn't do a lot of other things. I just focused on like, well, who am I all about? and what do I want? And it was great. I was I was so privileged to have the opportunity. And I know there's a lot of folks who have transitioned and um, have to deal with being uh, rejected by family and friends and losing housing and losing their, their jobs that they can't think about those things. They're thinking about survival the entire time. So for me, I was glad to have that just open, just maybe really think about who I wanted
1: to be. Did you experiment with different ways to be? Because when you spend most of your life up to that point as someone you didn't feel right as, did you know who you were supposed to be? If that makes sense.
2: Well, you know, I went back to the point in my life where I thought I was the happiest, and mm-hmm. that turned out to be like way early in my life when I was like 3 and 4 years old. Now, it didn't mean I went back and became a child, but I went back to the things that at those points that brought me joy. The times I was, you know, as a cartographer, you know, I was really into like maps as a little kid. So I was already doing that. It was my life. But all these other things, I mean, like I used to be someone who climbed trees as a little kid. Then suddenly afterwards, I developed this terrible fear of heights and I was so afraid of everything. And so I would uh, do things to challenge myself. And so one thing I did is I, I learned how to stilt walk. I was looking mm-hmm. for things to challenge myself. So I was just like, you know, I'm I've this new lease on life. You know, I don't need to be afraid of these things anymore. And when I transitioned, I my fear of heights went away. So I was able to go up to the edge of bridges and looking over and all these other things I had never done before. I was just somehow I was able to be free. And so I was looking for something for me to do. Like I could skydive, I could you know, climb mountains or things like that. But I decided it's like, I looked in the paper and there was like, you know, pay 50 bucks, we'll teach you how to still walk in two hours. And it's just like, I've always wanted to know how to do that. (laughs) And so I showed up, they put me on these two peg stilts. So it's wooden pegs. So it means Mm -hmm. like you have to constantly be like in movement. If you want to be standing straight up or you're going to be falling over. Mm-hmm. And looking looking forward and having your body stacked like your chest is stacked on top of your waist, on top of your knees. And so and so you're doing this the entire time. And I was holding onto the wall for a long period of time because I was afraid. It's like, am I going to fall off of these things? I feel like I'm way up in the air. Um, and I was the first person to push away from the wall and start walking around. But I also was the first person to fall. And I realized it was okay for me to fall. I became less afraid of falling, which was like probably the best thing for me to have because it would seem like that's what it is. You just fall, you get back up again. Right. And I think that was a good metaphor for life. It was a good metaphor for everything. So I learned how to fall. I learned that I was only as good as the equipment I had, that I can do anything I want to do if I was prepared. And so just was so fixated on tilt walking and this experience of doing that and just having this new freedom of having something I've never done before that I could do. The next day, I was over in the park, and that was the first day I sh- uh, I had a photographer come by and they shot pictures of me. Says so looking at people who were doing interesting things out there, and I ended up in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette for that. They put me in one of the I had a full page uh, like wow. a big page picture. They were it's on their I think they were looking for things to put in their Monday paper or something like that of mm-hmm. things that people were doing on the weekends. And there's this big picture of me just fully out you know with my hands out and just walking in on stilts it looked like it, it looked like I was a tree next to a tree it was so cool it became a metaphor for that freedom i experienced and uh so that's just an example of one of the things i did just to just to have the sense of uh freedom and contentment afterwards i was just trying new things and things i i wanted to do and and i also got to spend some time just focusing on things i needed for my transition like hair removal or um, working on my voice and finding the people in the community who can take care of that with me. I was impressed at how well I was able to navigate a community or a state that is not seen as having a lot of resources. It's like, it was one of those things where it's was like, I know a person or I know a guy and you would get it. I was just so glad to see how a community can come together and to support someone like myself. I wouldn't, I didn't have my family here. I didn't have, um, I had to build a whole new friend set here, but they became the people who took care of me. And so when you talk about it takes a village, it, the people in Arkansas were able to look out for me, which is wonderful.
1: Did you lose friends during this process? Yeah,
2: yeah, I did. I mean, I I had people who i worked with in the past who just didn't want to associate with me anymore. I had one person who had sent an invitation to come over to their house, and I said, it's okay for me to come over. And he says, like, we do not want you to be around our child. At the time, there were, you know, the the stereotypes about transgender people were about, things that really didn't have anything to do with transgender people. Like there were people who thought that I was a sexual deviant or that I must be some type of a, I must be like a sex offender or something like that because I'm doing this or something like that. And, you know, and so there were folks who were like, if someone got caught, someone got caught with something out there and they might've worn uh, clothes of the opposite sex, people were thinking it's like, well, people are going to think that you're this person people were always there was always this this concern that um, of my own safety so I had like a piece of paper from my therapist that said hey this person's under my care this is what this is who they are just trying to protect me but really at that time it's like it's really only up to me and hoping that hoping that if I ever got into, into trouble that I would be safe and you know just by handing him a letter or something like that but you know the chances of someone being you know with my transition I understood that you know there's a greater likelihood that I would lose friends. I would be, I could be arrested. You know, all these things because I've, transgender people at the time were living on the fringe. People didn't know who they were. And transgender people at the time were also afraid of being hurt and facing violence. And that still happens today, especially among um, trans people of color. You know, I understand that I have advantages because I'm white, but there are, you know, because the number of transgender people of color who get attacked are are at higher levels than, than what I've experienced. Do you know why that is? Um, because the intersection of race and gender. So it's it's racism. When people live in those intersections of racism and gender, they're more likely to to face violence. You know, and then you see less likelihood of them represented in, or make it harder to find a job. It's harder for them to to find housing. It's harder for these other things because of. Uh, a lot of the barriers they face growing up, or a lot of the barriers they face, they face culturally, or just all the social, economic, and economic issues that they face throughout life. I mean that there's a when people live at multiple intersections, they are there's a, a greater likelihood they're going to face discrimination. The more intersections that person has, the more likely. So and that's the experience, and that's why um, when we're talking about um, any kind of uh, advocacy, that we need to center those folks who are living at those intersections. Those are the folks who are going to be the greatest impacted. We're not going to make any change unless we really focus on what people who those lived experiences are brought to the forefront. So if I do that, then if I put their experiences at the forefront and the violence they're facing, then I am going to be benefit from that, benefit as well from that. If they're basing it mainly off of mine and mine has been a bit more privileged because I've had a lot more, I've had opportunities. I mean, I've been able to get a college education and I've I am white and I have I have a good network of, of friends and things of people looking out after me that and I've had insurance that you know my advantages are much higher. But yeah. when something is impacting them, it does impact me too. And so I need to be able to look out for those folks who aren't and use my voice as an ally to bring them to the forefront. So but um you know, I I had um I had lost friends. I had been faced discrimination and facing when finding housing. So I had a situation where I was checking an apartment and they found out from my records that my records didn't match up. Like they looked at a background check and, and saw that the gender was different. And then they just refused to come and show me the house or to show me the apartment because I needed to find a new place to live. You know, it's just like you pay the money to go do the background check and then they don't, won't allow you to see it because of who you are. I had that happen. And then my marriage fell apart. It's really hard, you know, when you have a situation where, you know, the state supports my transition, but then there are people who are trying to help my spouse through her dealing with the grieving and the other things in her life with me. And they're concerned about her future as a career. And so there are folks who were telling her that you know, you probably need to move on because you got to think about your life, your career, and this person is not the person you married. And it's like, okay, well, that's what happens.
1: What about that? I mean, you were not who you were when you married her. Right. Uh, you weren't at that point living your true life. So, right. and you I wasn't think, complete. Do you think that if she had been okay with everything, you would still be together? Or do you think you as becoming a different person, she wasn't even necessarily right for you as a woman? I think there would
2: have, I think that's fair, but I think uh, ultimately um, what was the biggest sticking point when I even look back to the divorce proceedings, it was about my, it was about my transition. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's not a no-fault divorce
1: Mm -hmm.
2: in Arkansas, and so I was the one... uh, that was alleged with indignities that I had did something to the marriage by transitioning and being someone else. And, you know, it's, it was hard to navigate Arkansas as a as a same sex couple because we were technically that's what we were legally being oh. seen legally. So it was hard to navigate that. And having to face folks who just who will not insure two women together. You know, those are challenges. I mean, it was, there were things that we were facing that was really hard. And and at the time, this is before Obergefell and all the rulings on um, same-sex marriage. There were things that were going to be really hard uh, to navigate. And um, it just, it just wasn't, uh, I think it was, you have to, I mean, sometimes you got to um, to love someone enough to hold them close. But you also have to love someone enough to let them go. Mm-hmm. And that was my process of that I I understood that it was going to make life difficult, and I didn't want to be a part of that. And I knew that we were not happy with each other, so it was better for me just to be able to let that person go at that moment. And um, you no, know, and I I I think it's a really difficult thing to navigate, you know, for that spouse. to to grieve and to deal with this. It's like, this is what I built my life on. This is all these things. But you also have to allow for changes to happen that ultimately I still was always the same person, but and we have to allow to change and grow. This is how I was going to change and grow. And sometimes the other person is not ready for that. So I I totally understand that.
1: Yeah, I am definitely sympathetic uh, to her position. Absolutely. um and just to clarify Oberfell is the same sex marriage case for anyone mm-hmm. who may not know the name mm-hmm. uh yeah that's a that's a tough thing i mean i've i've thought about that even just watching movies like um boys don't cry or something what if i fell in love with someone what if jason you know really was preferred to live as a woman well i'd love him more than anyone in the world but how would i feel about that because because our gender is such a huge overt part of our identity It's how we decide we're attracted to people and things like that. So that that I can imagine that was difficult for all of you. But when you were going through the transition, I mean, you didn't divorce until after you had absolutely uh, come out as a woman. I guess right. Right,
2: right. It was 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 she
1: supportive in that process to the extent uh, that she was able to be?
2: I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard when I think she was supportive, but I also think it's really hard when you see someone you. This image or something you want in your life, this idea that, you know, I want to have the husband and the dog and the picket fence and the house and the whole thing that she saw that all kind of starting to like disappear. It's like you wanted to hold on to that as much as you could. Mm -hmm. Um, And so over time, I think she would realize that little bits and pieces of the person who she envisioned me to be were going away. And she wanted me to stay that person, and I think that would have been very unfair to me for me to stay mm-hmm. that person, knowing that what I was going through and the pain I was going through and I think she understood the pain I was going through, but she also wanted to make sure that I was aware and knew the pain that she was going through mm-hmm. so you know when yeah. it, you wake up you wake up uh, one moment <laughs> and then you realize that you're next you're you're in bed next to someone who you don't recognize anymore. Right. And that's that's a lot to deal with seeming. And some people are able to work through it and some people aren't. I've known many couples who have stayed married that they realize that person who they're with is still their best friend. You know, Mm -hmm. some of them still have sexual relationships and some of them don't. But, you know, or sometimes they stay together for the kids. And fortunately for us, we didn't have children. We were planning to have kids. And I didn't. uh, I was afraid for if you know, if I didn't come out and take care of myself and be my authentic self, that I would not have survived our marriage and I, you know, less those kids. And I was afraid that, you know, if I didn't take care of this thing now, is it better for this child to have, you know, a parent who is trans or a parent who is dead?
1: Uh-huh.
2: And I had dealt with suicidal thoughts up until the point I transitioned and after that happened that no longer existed. I think it was much better and healthier for the child to grow up with someone who is, it would have been better for the child to grow up with someone was more authentic and someone who was living an open life than to have lived with someone who was like trying to be someone else for that child. I just don't, I don't see the point of not exposing whatever gets in the way of that person to be an open and loving person. There's no benefit for that. I mean, that person, it, I've known many parents who are trans who are able to raise happy and healthy kids and many, parents who have transgender kids who are able to be grow up happy and healthy because they're being living their lives with their genders being affirmed. I don't think there's any benefit for not doing that. So mm-hmm. I I just didn't couldn't see us both of us being together still. And so you know, she's still she remarried and she has children now, and I couldn't be happier for her.
1: Yeah, and and to, to be clear, I'm not I'm not trying to put her on the spot. I just I am just trying to really put myself in that situation and imagine what that must have been like. And
2: um oh, absolutely, I'm sim- I'm sympathetic, mm. and I've been as
1: and, and I mean for both of you, not, not just oh, her, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not fair to either of you. To your point, it wasn't fair for her, but it also wouldn't have been fair for you to be who she wanted if that's who you weren't really were and vice versa. So,
2: I agree, yeah. I agree. At
1: least we were in Pulaski County. Uh, the judges <laughs> tend to be a little more progressive in, about those things, but still, you know, it's still Arkansas.
2: When the day that the divorce happened, we were both crying out loud because we knew that we were not just, you know, our, each other as partners, but we were each other's best friends. We had lived so much time together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the thing that hurts most is that uh, we don't really have a relationship anymore.
1: When did you get involved? What was the name of the first organization before ARTEC?
2: After I had, at the time that I completed my transition, um, I was starting to get approached by folks over at the Center for Artistic Revolution. That's right. And so they were needing someone to to manage their, their transgender programming. And so I... At the time, they had a small support group that they wanted to get started, and they thought there was a need within the community for that. And so I went over there and I said, sure, I'd be happy to try this out. And it really changed my life in a way that I recognized that there were people who were in the same situation where I was at one point. They needed advice. They needed resources. They needed um, mentorship. They needed some place to go. They needed a space. And so we did. I, I did that for a while with with a co-facilitator. So I always worked in pairs. I could never. I don't really like working alone on things. I like working with someone else. I have someone else to bounce ideas off of. And so we did this together. It was effective for a while. I mean, we had people who were coming the meetings, um, but it was also really challenging. You know, uh, there were difficulties between you know transgender men and transgender women getting along in the same space, people having their own. When you Sometimes when you transition, so folks go through transitioning, they, they try to almost like either hyper-feminize or hyper-masculinize. They try to almost like go live out their role as much as they can or what they think their role is in their lives, what, who they want to be, and then until they get to a point where it feels like it's themselves. You have people in the same spaces that are... Who, who who probably at times they're all transgender, but sometimes they they couldn't relate to each other. And then you also have folks who are gender queer, people who are living between genders, people who are non-binary, people who don't have identified genders being in that same space. And it was really hard to get this group together to be a cohesive. And at the same time, people were dealing with the stresses outside of the work out of, out of the space. Like they may not get along with their families and they may be dealing with issues with conflicts with faith and conflicts in the workplace. And so you have all this stuff come into one space, and it's, it was really difficult to try and bring some common ground and meet the needs of folks. And if you did meet the, meet the needs of folks, the world and the environment that's on the outside was not very friendly. So they would come to a few meetings, and then when they got what they needed, they would, I would see people just go back into the world and try to disappear and blend in because there was no place to be out and open as being trans it was not seen as that. And people did had different views of what it meant to be transgender. Was being transgender a temporary thing between genders or was transgender who you are all the time and and living your life openly like that? I got an education in what my overall community was like. Ultimately, in the end, I realized like, yeah, we needed a support group, but we kind of needed more. And so that's how RTEC came to be.
1: And did you create Artec?
2: I was the co-founder of it, myself and my friend Colin. Colin had been working on like medical resources for the transgender community. I had just worked with a uh, group on policy and advocacy. I was, was working on previously on trying to get uh, non-discrimination, a non discrimination non discrimination bill passed through the U.S. Senate. It did pass, and they did get the support after advocating. I I was working trying to get Senator Mark Pryor, who was in the center of of Arkansas at that time, a Democrat, to sign on and support a non-discrimination bill, which was at the time, uh, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act at the time was going to end discrimination when it comes to employment, housing, public accommodations for LGBT people. And... Uh now it's it's a different bill. Now it's called the Equality Act. And it's still it's we have to do the process again nowadays right now about passing through the Senate, kind of passing through the House. But it, these are still things that we haven't gotten done. We there is no federal bill. There's no federal bill that says you can't discriminate against LGBT people like that. So I had this advocacy piece and Colin has this resource piece and we just says like, you know what, you know, would you like to work together on something? I didn't want to do a program through car anymore. And he had no interest in working with another organization. He wanted to do something else. And so we joined together. That was five years ago. I just, I needed to know how you start an organization. Someone says, you just get two people together and then you grow from there. And we started in 2014 and then we just focused mainly on trying to serve our communities. There was more people who were coming out as trans and, uh, that's what the way the landscape was changing, that we were seeing a lot more folks getting the needs of transgender people done because a lot of the LGBT groups were not dealing with those, were not dealing with transgender people. And so we just wanted to make sure we were focusing on meeting those needs and making sure people got what they needed to transition as well as doing some advocacy work and changing policy. And so we put that stuff together. So we did some amazing things while we were in the early stages. We were thinking about, hey, we can do name and gender change clinics. We can build a guide for folks. We also says like you know we can do research with we can do research with physicians and doctors and counselors and really kind of like start building up people who could be uh competent you know and culturally competent providers for transfer people so people can get better services we We were having town halls around the country around the state in order to talk about like the things that they needed to see done and putting communities together so we were it was kind of an amazing time of like No one had really staked this claim of a transgender group. We were the first ever trans only the trans specifically Targeted Group in the state of Arkansas. And we had a statewide mission and we just said, we can go ahead and do this. And we kind of, it was almost like giving people permission that you can be open about being trans. You can be, you can talk about your lives. You can, it's, you know, that you can be proud to be who you are. And we did so much, I did so much in a small amount of time with writing that Group and the organization still exists. It was just neat to see that people were open to these conversations. I got so tired of living a life where I had to be out at one point and be openly trans and, and not out another point and not being myself and trying to pass as, I didn't want to live another lie of like coming up with a backstory and well, oh, this is, this is my life. You know, it's like who I was beforehand and who I am today they're all, all a part of who I am. I need to bring my full self in this thing. I know that I had an atypical life of growing up but this is who I am now. I've always been this woman, but I've had I've had a journey to get there. I have to be this part of it. It has to be this part of this. I'm not going to make lies about the things I did in the past about who I, I mean, like I'm not saying that I'm not going to make stories that I was in the Girl Scouts or things like that. No, no. I'm going to make this full, I'm going to bring my full self, who I am now, my life history, what I've been through in all spaces And so building this organization and uh, being out and vocal about being a transgender woman and uh, bringing other people along and supporting people through their transitions and to have people live their lives openly in the workplace and housing and just being to be more open about it was just a, a radical thing to do at that point. And it, it changed the state in many ways.
1: Well, and that's my next question. So you say you went around the state. Were you going by invitation or were you showing up? And I guess I'm particularly interested in the areas outside of Little Rock and Northwest Arkansas that might be a little bit more progressive about these things.
2: So initially, I mean, like we, I had the idea. I was kicking around with a with a counselor about like, hey, we want to start this statewide organization. And how do we do these things? And, you know, it was like I wanted to get feedback from folks. It's just like, this is something we want to do. How do we do this? You know, how do we build this? And, you know, and she told me, this. we just go ahead and ask them. And I thought that was a rather radical thing. It's just like, instead of thinking about what people need, you know, we just go ask people what we need. So the organization really started by forming like a needs assessment, you know, and meeting with these different groups and finding groups that might be willing to partner. So I did go to Northwest Arkansas and, and partnered with groups up there. And I made the mistake of making it kind of about myself, but we want to work in partnership. I think they're like, who's this person from Little Rock coming up to Fayetteville and telling us what to think and do? Let's start our, our own organization. So there was some butting heads up there on some things, but we were able to have a town hall and be able to, started up there. And I also had the support at the time early of of HRC Arkansas. So the human rights campaign had just started their Project One America. You know, they were also kind of wanting me to have conversations with people about what it means to be trans in Arkansas. So it was a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I had the support of of that organization while I was also building RTEC. But then I also found like, you know, if I knew someone who was you know, when I came out as trans and started the organization, people would start coming, contacting us. This is like, hey, we have a group of people in this community. I think there's more of us. Can we do this? And we found a small space in Jonesboro where we brought together a group, and it was a tight knit group about like twenty, about twenty twenty five trans folk. That was a that's an area that doesn't have a an LGBT center, and it should have one. There's a lot of there's a lot of folks who are um trans identified in the area and they often have to get their services in Memphis. And so we just had meetings about like we had a meeting where we talked about like, hey, what are the things you need, what are the things you want, what are the things you have. And when people got into space and started sharing that between people who were identified as trans and people who were supportive as trans, we started recognizing there was something to build a community. And for uh months that group in Northwest Arkansas and Northeast Arkansas would get together and meet People were like, "Wow, there's a group of us that are meeting in Northeast Darkness. I never thought this group was going to exist, but it kind of it allowed those folks to actually come together and look each other after each other like a family." And it was—it's it, sometimes the what happens in these communities were kind of determined by the leadership and the people who were there. You know, where you may have some folks who may be more defensive and say like, you know what, we can do this ourselves. We don't need you around, Andrea. And there are some other folks who be like, you know, I really appreciate you come up here all the time and, and be with us. It really gives us some confidence and really connects us to the rest of the state. This is wonderful. Can we we want to be a part of this? We did the same thing. We would have town halls in Fort Smith. We would get people together in Conway in Hot Springs. I went down and spoke at UA Monticello at one point. So we try to network and go all over the state. Um, because we knew that transgender people were living in all points of the state, in all different areas, rural areas, urban areas, small towns. They were everywhere. And so we had to find people where they were and meet people where they were. So that are those
1: was, groups still active?
2: Um, in informal ways, yes. I mean, like, there is another – there's a lot of folks who are trans who are doing activism in – Northwest Arkansas, um, the River, River Valley Equality Center now has a transcript that they have. They formed together after we had some conversations. They want to make sure they were inclusive and want to have include transgender people in their work. And so they have work in Fort Smith doing that. There, I think there are still people in Northeast Arkansas that still get together on a regular basis. But some places were also really hard folks to be out in trans there was a there were a couple instances in hot springs for instance where transgender people were um um allegedly beaten by folks mm-hmm. like they've and it was not a very friendly place and so I don't think that group still gets together in hot springs but you know I've gone on the hot springs as as a transgender person and had really, really wonderful times down there so I mean it's it's often based on You know personal experiences and what they deal with there are still parts of the state that i haven't been yet and i would love to go and travel and meet folks down there in other places i've never i lived in arkansas for about 10 years and never been down to el dorado for instance and i would love to go down there and see if there's folk down there but i assume that there's transgender people all over the state and any way that we can connect them i think it's harder for folks outside of little rock and faithful to get the resources that they need also it's really harder much harder for them to advocate for themselves I totally understand that. And uh, what can we do to try and change those things? What can we do to connect people to the resources that they need? Um, But I will say that the landscape has changed so much. And, you know, we didn't have the Affordable Care Act when I was starting. And now we see people getting affirming care through the Affordable Care Act and having more and more providers be able to provide it because now the insurance is going to pay for them. And we see the VA has grown to be one of the largest providers of transgender healthcare in the country, and we have people who live in really rural areas. Who are able to get access to the VA, the VA um, healthcare. So, those are things that have changed over the time when the tech was started and what's happened since. And so, pretty fast, just wanted, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean. We put the guide out for a name and gender change guide, a legal guide out publicly that you can do your name and gender changes in all 75 counties in Arkansas. We have people all over the state who take those take those forms and fill out their fill them out and being able to get their name changes done Mm -hmm. and having an affirming an affirming identification marker in you know ID that helps them with like all the times in your life when you have to actually have a an ID. So when you you know have to go to a bank or you know, or if you are picking up cigarettes and alcohol, or if you're being stopped by a police officer, or now even if you have to vote. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a it's really suppressing. Uh, to, people are not going to want to vote if they're you know if their ID is not matching who they are and they have to have that questioned. So it's there. It's important for someone to have a firming ID, and it it changes people's lives.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine the number of different ways that just you're name or identity affect your day-to-day life in the yeah. way that you just, you know, in examples that you just given. Uh, it's definitely a privilege not to have to worry about that. So Absolutely. you you were recently selected to be on the R-Tech board again, right? Right.
2: So I left in 2015. At the time, I was serving as executive director. I did, I was really proud of the work we were doing, but it was still a group that was, you know, so very early, we still had so much work to do. And I got to see how the Since I left, um, it's been really neat for me to come in and see sometimes is that like they've recognized I was doing like the jobs of like three or four or five different people. Mm-hmm. They come in and they're, they've are they taken different roles. People take different responsibilities. It has more a community feel that things will recognize that they had to pick up the slack if they wanted to continue some of the things they were doing. But also then people were able to put their own influences on things You know, really putting more focus on really helping people survive and some of the more um, systemic things that transgender people face, whether like issues of trying to support people who are behind bars and bailing out individuals who are, you know, who needed to be bailed out, things like that, and working with another movement. So I saw... So much, so many things grow, and I think now it's, since I came back to Arkansas, I have such a close tie to this organization. It's part of my. It's probably one of my most, most proudest achievements is to get that started. I wanted to be a part of what we want to do moving forward, and I've been asked to um, help out with fundraising, help building the organization for the future. I mean, it still is a statewide organization, that's had a lot of different changes in how we want to go forth in the future with. What we want to be to the state, what, how we want to meet the needs of, the, of of our communities and grow with them, and mm-hmm. uh, how do we support all the groups we want to work with? We're seeing a, a huge insurgency, a great number of of groups that are are assisting um, LGBT people of color, especially trans people of color. A lot of work that's been done here.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, uh, House of Gigi's is here in Little Rock. You have one of the the mother of the movement when it comes to this work, Miss Major Griffin Gracie is here, living here in Arkansas. Who was there at Donwall, is living here in Little Rock, and you know we want to be able to to, to support the kind of um, communities that are growing here and becoming much more stronger. And so the, the world's changed. And one of the things I know that the group wants to work on is finding a space, building a space. There's not enough um, really defined LGBT spaces, you know, especially trans spaces. So that's one of the things that we're looking at going forward is like, how do we, how do we support our communities, whether it's like through further resources, strategies, or having a space for people to go and to be themselves?
1: What do you mean by space? What does that look like? Well, I mean, are you talking about an office or entertainment? Well, it could be,
2: I think it's, it could be all those things, but ultimately I think it's a place where we can be able to conduct our programs You know, it could be a a drop in place for people to get resources that they need, but also a community space for um, folks to come together. People don't have to worry about people won't have to worry about feeling um, a place where people can feel themselves. I mean, oh. we've seen so much culture change, and we see people who are living openly as trans in all places. But I think we have to realize as well that right now we're in a culture that's kind of targeting us. Right now, you know, when you have a uh, a president who has who's seeking to ban transgender people from the military, and then you at the same time are dealing with a, a state that has overturned a non-discrimination law. In uh, Fayetteville, making it really harder for them to enforce it. You know, you're kind of creating a uh, culture where there can be actors out there who can, who may want to take advantage of it and say that, well, I guess you don't have any protections at all. Well, we not, we don't want to see people go backwards. We want to be able to have people to have a safe space, place where people can be themselves. You know, we have to be aware that not everyone has, has the privilege of feeling welcome in all places. So. Mm-hmm. I ultimately, I think it's one of those things where we're just going to be a lot of things in one space, but it's going to allow us for an opportunity to be able to bring to do our work going forward. We've never had a space in the five years since the organization started, but it's one of those things we want to look at. What is that going to involve, and what you know, what is it going to be, and how can we best uh, meet the needs of our of our people? And I. I'm excited about that prospect, and I'm—I am glad I'm also not the person who's driving this organization. I—I I do think that there's just a, a need for new leadership, and we need to grow leadership, and we need to see a lot more. Um, I want to see transgender people in all positions of authority and I mean, all positions, and to see they I mean, have them embrace opportunities. I'd love to see trans people be able to work in openly and. All types of spaces. People need to be able to know that we are valuable contributors to our communities. We pay taxes. We get educations. We we are family members, neighbors, lovers, all types of different people, and um, we just want to be a part of the fabric of the state. Any way that we can try and make that happen, and we do that through our leadership. of have seen different people take on roles. You know, the more we become just a part of the state not just seen mm-hmm. as someone who is, uh, once people know who we are, we are irresistible. And I find I mean? that, I mean, like that when people have preconceived notions of what it means to be trans, and sometimes they're from stereotypes and sometimes from other, and sometimes it's just fear. They don't know who we are. And, you know, and when you, when you put a name on something, uh, you dehumanize that person. So when you get to know someone who is trans as I've learned from being out and open and people get to see who I am and who I'm about and, you know, that um, deep down they get to see that, you know, I'm just a nice person, you know, who cares about their community and cares about people. Once you get to know who people are, people that that kind of bury that wall kind of comes down. So I kind of think that it's like I say, if you get to know us, you're going to love us it's because people are not going to be afraid and people are not going to hate people that they know. And what stands in the way sometimes is the exposure people have, our communities, our clusters that we live in. And there's a responsibility among people to get to know who we are, but then there's also a responsibility from us to be able to be out there and open and to to meet people where they're at because they're never going to get to know us unless we introduce ourselves to them. Um, I've been very proud that I've had people in my life who I've considered very deeply conservative who have been friends of mine, you know, I think everyone has the capacity to understand and learn and to appreciate another person. And, you know, even though you may not be able to step and know what it means to walk in my shoes, at least you can respect my, my, my right to exist. And then that's in many ways what transgender people are facing right now is this, uh, fighting for the ability for their right to exist. Just to exist. Uh, yeah. Just to exist. um, We've seen uh, states like Utah trying to propose bills that are going to change the definition of success to take transgender people off the map completely. It's almost as if, like, no, you don't exist. You're not this person anymore. Well, we have a life history and an experience, and we're a part of this community. Just How can't... are they
1: trying to erase they changed, that?
2: They changed the entire definition of what it, of, of sex. They say that sex is immutable, and if sex is immutable, then to them, then, it's, you know, that puts everybody under different classifications and therefore, like, I cannot, you know, I don't to them that I'm not trans anymore, mm-hmm. which is completely not right. Because what, it, you know, I mean, ultimately, I'm being, I face issues that other women face because I'm being seen as a woman. That doesn't make any sense. It's a whole bunch of different things that people are trying to do to air and the rile up and to get their people right up on their side and just say, oh, we're doing something about this. But, you know, deep down, they're not doing anything, essentially anything that's helpful. Or, and what they're often doing is things that are unconstitutional and, and illegal. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, instead of fighting, uh, fighting someone you don't understand, why don't we just get to know them? And I think that goes for any group, any group that you don't, you find in unfamiliar, whether you're talking about transgender people or Muslims or communities of color or, Immigrants to our country, I mean like if you get to know who people are, you're not going to feel this way, or your notions of who those folks are and what they are and their experiences might change in you right now. we 're very much in a polarized space and i don't I don't find myself in opposition of a lot of people, and I am very much happy to go ahead and talk with folks and meet with folks and uh put myself out there. We need to be able to have a conversation about this. We can't keep on having our uh young people being targeted in schools and we can't start keep denying transgender people health care. We we can't see can't continue to have families being ripped apart because they can't possibly connect that their that their child's still their child, you know, and that they are worthy of love. One of the most beautiful things someone ever told me once this is like that was one of my doctors and it's Dr. Terry Jefferson, and I who was my first physician when I was transitioning, and he had told me it's just like, you know, at one point I was just felt like, you know, I'm dealing with you know, all these issues, I'm dealing with all these These problems in life, and you know, people telling me terrible things about who I am, and I just felt down about myself. And he looked at me in the eyes like, "Don't you ever forget you are a child of God?" And I was just like, "Yeah." I mean, that kind of kind of sets things out. It's just that you are, you know, you were you were beautiful in the way you were. You've been made, and this is how you were made. You were made to be this person, and you need to figure out how you're going to use it. So, I, I that's really stuck with me, and a lot of I think not a lot of people would know this, but a lot of how I, you know, how I approach my work is based off of just um, of of my faith. And I am a proud Jewish woman, and um, I believe that I just don't want to see people struggle and suffer. And so um, whatever I can do to create a world where people can empower themselves and be in a position where they don't have to struggle or they can struggle less, I feel like I'm doing a good job.
1: I'm going to move on to Bernie. Yeah, um, absolutely. We've been talking for over an hour now, because that's how we do. And uh, that's
2: that's me. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> there's a lot to your story. Just briefly explain how you got to Oregon, why you went there, and then how you were able to be in a stadium full of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, introducing Bernie Sanders. Well, when
2: you have people who notice your work in Arkansas and that you're working in a state that is typically can be rather difficult to people who, you know, don't live in Arkansas, don't have an understanding how the Midwest and the South works. You know, when you start making changes happen and you're organizing, you are bring people together and you're getting groups of 50 to 100 people show up for events and things like that. When you start doing things like that have people on the coast then the notice, and that's where a lot of the LGBT work is done. So... I was working in Arkansas at that time. I was really happy uh, working at the at the Department of Transportation, and I was working with HRC Arkansas and working with Artec. I had a really full plate, and friend of mine, friends from the National Center for Transgender Equality, were like, tipping me off and says like, Hey, you know, there's an opportunity to do uh, work in Oregon with Basic Rights Oregon. There's a policy director position open. You you might be interested in that one. And I was doing some policy work back and forth with folks at NCTE for a while. Um, And I was just like, no, I was really dedicated. I really like doing this work here. Um, Over time, what happened was my contract with HRC Arkansas ended. um, And I started to look in my life and was noticing I was spending a lot more time Focusing on my activism work, and really, my mind was not as much on my job as I, it used to be. Like it was really hard for me to concentrate, and my passions were changing from this thing I loved doing cartography to doing activism work. It was really trying to occupy. It was occupying most of my life, and so I. It got to a point where I realized I couldn't keep it up. There was no way that that my activism life had taken away, taken me away from this world I really wanted to be a part of. I really love doing this mapping work. But this activism work was taking me away and I had an opportunity. So I applied for it at the last minute. I was interviewed and I found I was on a short list of people that they were wanting to consider. And ultimately, I got the job and having to come back and tell my folks here, it's just like I was given this opportunity to go to Oregon and they're like, you're not going to leave us. And then they turned what the job was to be the policy director. And knowing there weren't a lot of transgender people in director positions around the country. And it was something that I needed to do. It was a t- huge change. And they kind of understood when I heard what the name of the title, of the position was, and the pay that you, that I had to go. It was so sad. It was probably the toughest thing I ever did. And I debated over time, was it the right thing to do? But I kind of gave people the line. It's like, you know, I'm going to be back eventually. I wanted to go somewhere where I can pass policies and get things done and make change happen. Um, that was going to be an easier place that I can I can learn all those things more in a place like Oregon than I could here because it was really much more difficult to do this work here because the politics was not really supportive of, of me. Right. So I went to Oregon.
1: And what year was that?
2: Up, this was 2015. This was October of 2015. I started in November of 2015 there. And fortunately, you know, I still kept my ties to Arkansas so. This is beginning of 2016. Sarah Scanlon, uh, who is, is a podcaster, an organizer, active person here in Arkansas, uh, was at the time, uh, got a position on the, on the Bernie Sanders campaign. At the time, I was just like, you know, I was disappointed, you know, the Clinton campaign already had a lot of people doing work for them and were signing folks. And she so was like, you know what? Okay, I guess they don't want me to help out or anything like that. So I sat around and she contacted me and said, like, hey, would you like to help out Bernie? Oh, I got to check out more about this, you know? So I really got to start researching into Bernie Sanders and I was just like, Oh, I guess I'm on board with this. And I contacted my parents and I found out they were all supporting Bernie Sanders as well. And so I signed up and she added me to uh, an LGBT for Bernie Sanders committee. So there was like myself and then a whole bunch of other folks that I, you know, I'm being added with like people like actress Shailene Woodley and um, Mm -hmm. Michael Stipe from REM and, Ed Drosti from Grizzly Bear, and, and all these other folks that then I know who are like also activists and people like that. One of my mentors, Danny Aschini was on the list as well. She's a trans activist. So, I mean, like all of us were on this committee together and we were all there to help out the Sanders campaign with like, you know, with like things like if there were um, platforms needed developed to develop or ideas that the Sanders campaign can take on or policies that they wouldn't have anything to say, say about or to, or to openly talk about the Sanders' campaign out publicly, the folks we were the folks on that list. We were the list of people who were supportive. Time goes on, time goes on. Get to about March of 2016, and Sarah contacts me up and says like, Hey, you know, we're going to be doing a rally in Portland in a few days. Would you be interested in, you know, in speaking? You know, they were asking me about if, if I knew anybody there, and I says like, I know somebody who can talk, and they mentioned me. So I said, I, sure, I can I can do something. Well, someone from the campaign will get in touch. And so they did. And they said, but if you can write about one page, one side of a page, double spaces about three minutes, if you can prepare that, you know, great. Go ahead and um, prepare what you, you know, a speech for Bernie. I didn't know what to say. I had some of my coworkers help me out um, figuring out what it was going to be.
1: And they provide right? there was no
2: guidance, no nothing that it's just like, just, just say how you support Bernie and why you support Bernie and stuff like that. And, you know, come up with your own personal story. And so I wrote a, I wrote a speech that really looked into like my own personal history and why I'm here. And then to say, you know, how Bernie really extends to my life. And then at the end, just do a big push in the end for Bernie. And I did not know that for so the day was March 29th of 2016. I did not know that I would be the Person to introduce Senator Sanders that day. Until I got there, so I get there, and I've never seen a scene like this. It was like almost like a carnival atmosphere. It was where, what was, it the was venue? It was like a rock concert. It was it was the Moda Center. This is where like the Portland Trailblazers play. So it has the <laughs> capacity of about like fourteen thousand, like twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen thousand people. You know, and mm-hmm. there were people like the entire all the rafters were full. Um, all the stands were full. The floor was mostly full. So this is, this place is filled with people.
1: It was, and they were and not intimidated at all.
2: I was intimidated. I just, what? I, I, did, I just, you know, but they were being like, you know, I had this sheet of paper in front of me, you know, it's going to be fine. You know, they had good handlers are taking me through everything. All I knew I had to do was wait. I was I was sitting. I think this, the thing that made it harder was that I got there at about like seven thirty in the morning, eight o'clock. You know, I got to see some of the festivities that were going on. I mean, I mean, Voodoo Donuts came over with a big donut that had Bernie Sanders' mm-hmm. face on it. It was like a portrait of him made out of, of a donut, and <laughs> I got this. I got to see people like the performer Ed M ward was, I was supposed to be initially in the group. And then when he didn't show up with his guitar, they were asking that to perform me. They kind of took him off the list. And so things like that were happening behind the scenes in that space. And it was myself. It was the thermals. It was, uh, one of the dandy Warhols, mm-hmm. uh, Someone who was a volunteer with the campaign and you know, myself. And there was a whole bunch of us. You know, that's all, all we were. And we, were, we had to stay with this one person who was working with the Sanders campaign because they, you know, there were secret service and things we had to go through because he was a candidate. And they had to make sure that security was fine. And so we couldn't leave this person. start out at about noon is when they first went on stage. And so thermals performed and all these other folks were on stage. And I'll talk. And I had to go on before... They had to wait for me to go on before Senator Sanders. I had not seen Senator Sanders yet. Senator Sanders was talking with people in the, you know, was talking with constituents and people on the side. So we get there and about when all the performers are done at noon and we have a whole crowd of people who are just waiting for Bernie and they're on their feet, you know, 13,000, 14,000 people. They've been waiting there for hours. They stopped at noon, and I I had to still go along with this other person because I had to wait. I I was the one who was going to come up before the center was going to speak. So it wasn't until another hour... Wow. Until he was ready. And so I'm at the same time, this person is with me and I had to run with her, do logistics. I was exhausted. I'm going from one end to the other end. <laughs> I am, you know, trying to be with this person just to follow this person because I had, if I, if I didn't stay with this person, I wouldn't get a chance to speak. Right. And then five minutes, we get to the back of the podium. He just like, okay, you're going to be ready to go up very soon. We'll tell you when to go up. I was going to be the first person to go up. They didn't have anybody introduce me. I had to go up to the podium. I was going to do all the work on my own. They said, you know that three-minute speech you have? Cut a minute off of it.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Because people there have been waiting for you for him. You get to it as much as fast as you can. Um, so instead of taking three minutes to talk, I took a minute 47. And wow. I got on I got on stage, and I just spoke into it. It says, like, hey, hello, Portland, and stuff like that. And I just said something into the microphone, and the whole crowd went up. And I've never had it in my life where I could say anything into a microphone and directed on my own. Like I could have said anything and the crowd would have erupted. It was a rock concert. It was not a political rally. That was a rock concert. And so I get up there and I start getting into my speech and I just focused then on like getting the words out of my mouth. I didn't know what I was doing to know my actions. I just knew that I was just like there in the moment and speaking and it was over. It was wow! It was like going on a roller coaster, and you you're doing this, the spins and the twirls, and you're off, and you want to say like, "Can we do this again?" And you, because of the rush, I couldn't really enjoy my time on stage. Mm-hmm. But I was there, and it was amazing, and it was warm, and people were so receptive and supportive. Then I got swept off stage, shook hands with Senator Sanders, met with him, and then I realized that it's like, "Hey, I." was planning to be somewhere else. There was, my organization had like a, was going to be at like a a healthcare conference that day. And I was supposed to table in the afternoon and says like, Hey, can I, you know, can you escort me out? And so I left. And so I did not, this was the same rally where the bird came down on, on the podium when Senator was speaking. So I tell people, it's like, you know, I spoke at the, I did the introduction at the rally where the bird came down. I was at the birdie rally. It's a legendary rally as people know about this one. and you know, but I wasn't there in the building when it happened. Instead, I, I left, I, I got a t-shirt, I went up the road, got myself something to eat, and I ran into folks. and it was like, hey, you know, I just did the introduction for Bernie Sanders. And it was like, oh my God, that's going on right now. That's amazing. There's a huge crowd of people down there. And it was just like, people want to talk about, do with me about it. And I don't think... The attention to me hit the fan until about that was a Friday. It didn't hit me until that Sunday when the campaign went back and just started taking pieces from the from the rally. Like the birdie mm-hmm. thing came out the next day or that day when the birdie cord came down. But they were looking for other content and they took my speech and the Sanders campaign posted it on their on their website. And that went viral. And yeah, what I, I did, remember that. What I did not know at the time that when that happened. No one had ever seen what I did before. That had never what do happened. You mean? I mean, what do you mean, I, mean what like, you I mean, never before had the had the greater public seen a transgender person introduce a major party candidate for for mm-hmm. for, for president. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That went all over the country. No one had ever seen that. Senator Sanders started really the conversation within that campaign about transgender people openly about it. I mean there was aspects and other things, but they never put a transgender person out there to speak about it. Right. I found out that just before that in another city in Spokane, another person um, had spoken about it, but her speech was very long. It didn't go viral in that way. They did they didn't use it. And so my speech was shorter, more to the point, or something they can put on online and therefore then they used mine to spread around the country. And so it was kind of I became associated then directly with the Sanders campaign and I then, you know, a lot of folks reach out to me and says like, oh, you're Andrew because you did this stuff for Sanders. We want to be totally with you. And I had parents come up to me and say like, I, I saw your video with my child and my child was crying because I never saw a transgender person be lifted up in this level before. And it was huge. And that entire week, I, I went viral. My, I was, people were checking my analytics. This was like, you know, people are, there are stories about you all over the country now. And, you know, some people are picking it up and you're now memes and things are trying to take a piece of you and all this stuff. And I never really didn't do an interview. They just took, they just took that, took that piece of video and made a story out of it. And just looked it and then went over the internet and looked at all the things I was doing. So I was seen as this Arkansas activist who speaks openly about her experiences and her struggles for the Sanders campaign. It was kind of Kind of a really interesting thing, and from that moment, then I did another speech. I went out and stumped with uh, Senator Jeff Merkley of of Oregon and uh, Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. Oh. they came to they came to Oregon and they asked me, can you can you speak at the Park Blocks in Portland and talk about you know why you support Sanders?" and And the senator ended up winning Oregon. It was a fun experience. I will probably. I, you know, it makes you want to taste that experience for yourself, like makes you want to run for office, makes you want to be in that space again, makes you want to have that crowd. It was, I want to be able to have that again and, and be able to experience it, but there will never be, I don't think there'll be another thing that will ever feel like that, um, for me right now, it'll be, it'll be hard to top. And I have had people who come up to me and says like, I remember you from that rally. And I've had it happen. I've had people who were in attendance at that rally come up to me and says like, I was there when you spoke on stage, and I was I was in awe when you did that. And for me, I wanted to prove myself that I can speak openly and and on on message and amongst a crowd because there were people who questioned whether I could do that. You know, well, our, were there any I mean, our, repercussions? Our, some of the repercussions that came out of it. If there were um, there were people who were putting me up against um, my friend Sarah McBride, who is the currently the um, press secretary for the human rights campaign, but she did this speech at the democratic convention. Mm-hmm. And so there were folks who were saying, like, well, you've got Sarah, you know, Clinton campaign's got Sarah McBride and, you know, and we have Andrea Zekas and there was this rivalry thing between the two kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so it just like, and Sarah and I are friends. And it was just, that was kind of hard to deal with like some of the, the inner fighting between Clinton and Sanders folks that was right. going on.
1: You were not in Portland very long before you went to Alaska. Right. No,
2: no, no. And there was actually a stop in between because you got to think that.
1: Oh, you went to DC, um, right?
2: Yeah. So Portland happened. I was laid off in Portland. Then went to DC, got a job as a community organizer for the National Center for Transgender Quality in DC. That was a wonderful experience being there for six months. My contract was only for that long. So I had to drop my things in Portland, go there, get a space, do all that stuff, work on the work they needed to be working on, whether it's like doing rapid response to rallies or trying to meet the needs of people in our in our States around the country that were dealing with anti-transgender bills, doing that work, that ended. And then after that, I was like, what do I want to do next? I could have taken unemployment and stayed in D.C., but then I decided, it's like, no, I, I want a new challenge. I want to work on a campaign. It had been a while since I worked on a campaign. Um, so I applied to both the campaigns in Massachusetts and Alaska that were both facing anti-transgender um, ballot measures and do the defense for that work. And I ended up getting the one in Alaska. Alaska Mm -hmm. came forth first, and I, instead of redirecting myself back, at the time when I got the job, I was in the Pacific Northwest. Instead of heading back east with my things so I can drop them off and so I can be in one place, I drove back up, I drove up to Alaska and started working with the ACLU up there in Alaska. I did, I did so many small. Contract jobs and such a, or what turns to be small spits at different places. It feels like it's much longer than what it was, but I was just trying to stay working and I loved mm-hmm. doing this work and I was looking for other opportunities. And who can say that they got to work for one of the best statewide LGBT organizations in Oregon? You know, one of the best statewide organizations making a lot of policy changes in one state. Uh, one of the top um, LGBT organizations, one of the top trans organizations in the country, and at um, NCTE. And then I get to finish up with working with the ACLU. Mm-hmm. That was just like a lot of really, really uh, rewarding experiences. And then having to work on an issue of, of transgender rights in a place where there really wasn't uh, a large infrastructure of transgender organizations or people. At the when I first got, got up in Alaska, they they really didn't. No, they had this anti-trans ordinance but didn't have any, didn't need to find trans people to work with on it. I went there initially just to organize and find trans folks who want to work on this campaign. I uh, didn't get to stay, here, stay there that long because I faced a lot of personal issues up there and a lot of health issues but hmm. um And it was also exhausting to move from place to place to place to place and do a lot of work and don't have any downtime. It's really hard. Uh, When I got there, you know, at the end when they actually ultimately won, so that that campaign did win. But I left midway through the process. Um, I'm very grateful that they still credited me for being able to build the building blocks to get that going. And I don't think they would have been in that position otherwise.
1: Well, haven't you recently been approached about coming back, going back to Alaska?
2: Yeah. So the the group of people that I helped bring together and let them sh- and let them know that they need to advocate for themselves and they want to, you know, they have to form their own, their own group and not think about, they were in the position where I was years before when I was trying to think it's like, we don't need a support group. We need an advocacy group, you know? And mm-hmm. so that advocacy group that I helped bring other people together initially and bring the trans folk together and unite them underneath this campaign became their own organization, so it became Transgender Leadership Alaska. And so, upcoming in March, they're having their first summit, like a transgender summit where they get to invite, the public gets to come and they get to take care take of workshops, but these are, they're bringing people in from all over the state, so people from Juneau and Ketchikan and Sitka on the, on the southeastern part, and then folks from Fairbanks are coming down, and people from the Kenai Peninsula, so Soldatna and Homer and those places are coming north, Alaska is a huge state. You know, people don't travel that easily around. You have to fly to get from place to place. And it takes money and it takes effort and resources. And so I understand it. there's just a lot that these folks have to do. It's, it's expensive to run, uh, to do a statewide effort in Alaska, let alone trying to have an event like this. It's a lot of your costs end up going to lodging and transportation and trying to take care of the people you bring there. Um, right. So they reached out to me and said, like, hey, we 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 want you to be there and I think they're looking, they were also looking for me to be, you know, I've always been a supportive person to them and I really am proud of them and the work that they're doing and they have an amazing opportunity to make a lot of changes up there in Alaska by becoming a group and there never had been a transgender group up there before. I was just really honored and touched that they wanted to invite me to back up there and so they did approve a workshop I want to do for them which is about sustaining, being sustainable, um, trying to work with what you have, trying to... It was, I want to do something that fits where they're at because they're a starting organization very early in the process. And uh, they approved it. And so it's just a matter of having uh, time and money to, to travel because it's expensive for them to do what they need to do, but it's also expensive for me to, to travel as well. And also I'm a full-time student in school. So it's right. uh, that's a challenge. It's a challenge. But um, I am so proud. I think of my... You know, the Bernie thing was fun and the work I did in other these other organizations were fun, but there was nothing that will ever replace being able to work with people on the ground and to empower them to do what they need to do and to build organizations and try and make change happen in their communities. And so whether it's, I'm so, I'm proud of the connections I have here in Arkansas. And even though I didn't feel like I spent that much time in Alaska, I was there for only four months, I was putting in about 80 to 100 hour days a hundred hour weeks. I mean I was working oh. a lot and I felt like I was there a lot and putting myself out there and people appreciated that and the community appreciated. It. And I got to see a role model in me that they often didn't get to see if someone who is, you know, trans and empowered and and said that, you know, that you need to we should build our own things to make the changes happen we want to see. They are. They've been wonderful, and I wish them all the best of luck.
1: Yeah, and and there is just being able to be there and build those connections and try to help them build the infrastructure to move forward. Um, it's it's got to be like having kids almost.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think. It's hard for groups who have never done this work or are navigating landscapes they never navigated before to try and do this. You know, when I started this organization, when I started Artech, no one set me aside and said, hey, this is how you do your operational stuff. This is how you report to the government. This is always, no one ever tells me this stuff, you know. I needed to have people there with me the entire time to help me through this process and to make sure that we were doing things right. And we were also serving the public correctly and meeting their needs and you know, we want to be, we wanted to get things done. We also want to be responsible about it. And that's a lot. I mean, if you, if you want to be able to get the grants that you need to make the changes happen, you know, or create the programs that you want to see made done or you have a concept or idea, you have to be able to um, put two and two together. And you just don't go through it alone. It's a team effort. And sometimes you, you, you have the people in your team and sometimes you need to build the, the competency and the experience to do that work. And so I understand that I'm going to make mistakes and they're going to make mistakes, but I want to be there with them along the way. Just to know that they're not alone. That if they ever need me, I'm there for them. And uh, that uh, the successes that people experience and the, like the successes that happen in Anchorage and getting the win up there made the world a difference to people who are working in Massachusetts when they won their campaign in uh, November. You never know what your, you know, you never know what your influence is until you get to see what it means to other folks. And coming back to Arkansas and having people come up to me and says like, I saw you speak openly about being trans and I saw the videos about you through HRC, and it made me come out in my at home and I can feel nothing but the fall over and cry. I have people come yeah. up to me and says like, I had a kid come up to me and say like, you know what? I don't see older trans people out there living their lives openly like you do. I thought that when I hit older, I'm supposed to die. Cause I don't see anybody else like me. And you hear that from the youth and you just, all you do is cry. Yeah. If you don't cry when you hear stuff like that, you're not, you're not human. I have to respond, and I have to. I, I just feel so touched when I see people want to take these things and make these things happen, and create things, and uh, do things in their communities, and uh, and to make decisions that are going to be beneficial, not just for themselves, but for their friends. And you know, it's small things that happen, and people do small things all the time. But if it happens in Arkansas, and it happens in Alaska. People are gonna notice not just in the Arkansas and Alaska, they'll notice everywhere else. Your difference that you make in your small town or your or your community is gonna make a huge difference for everybody else. You may think it's a drop in the bucket, and some people around you may think it's a drop in the bucket, but I will, you know, I'm one of those folks who will look at that and says like, that is amazing. My favorite work is the rural organizing work, sometimes the small town organizing work, the small communities, the, the red state work. I love that stuff, and I'm really appreciate that. I have colleagues all over the country that maybe they work in the East Coast or the West Coast, and they look at that. And it's just like you know that Andrea Zika, she's one of the best trans organizers organizers out there about doing community work. She goes into different places, and so she fights for stuff, and she looks for stuff, and so she there's nothing left of her left. And so I'm trying to fix that other part. I'm trying to be more, do more with less, and not be and not wear myself completely out there because that's what ended my time in Alaska. That way I can come back and do things stronger and do things with other folks and do things better than I did before. So I'm always changing, always going to do things better, and I'm always excited for the future.
1: Yes, that's all we can hope for, right? Doing better, being better, making the world a better place for others.
2: Yeah, learning from it.
1: I'm going to be 40
2: next week. Organizing is a young person's game. And I know I may have lost a couple of steps, but I still want to learn new tricks, and I still want to help people, and I still want to do this work, and I still want to relate to whoever wants to organize when uh trump was elected i was sitting in an office space in portland and i just felt like this need to want to go onto the ground and to meet with people and to see what the world looks like now that we've elected donald trump as our president mm-hmm. and i did that i got to go to dc and i got to go to alaska and i got to really get them get to meet people in different parts of the country and talk with different people from different parts of the country about their experiences. And that was so much fun. That was the thing I needed to do at that time. Now I'm in the Clinton School, trying to really refine my tools and my background as a you know, semi organizing skills apply to other things to be able to do better work with, like how we do sustainable work, how we were able to do um, strategic work and the programming and evaluation work that we need to do to do effective work. And now I'm planning on going to law school. I've wanted to go to law school for a long period of time. I think now is the right time for me to do it um, because I want to be effective in doing the policy work and also to advocate for people as well as, you know, there are still many members of our communities who don't have, you know, who cannot find effective, uh, can't find effective le- legal support to do the work they need to do or representation. So I want to be that person for them. I want to make sure that I want to be the person who helps uh, balances out justice for folks more. Improves access for people to get the make sure that their rights are being um, respected and their arguments are being heard. Oh, so I want to be that person. And I'm excited about it.
1: Yeah, people don't understand the importance of laws and, and policies, because if there's no law against something, you can't you can't break it. And if there are no protections for certain classes of people, then you can abuse them and oppress them. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, that's why it's important that we have these protections for everyone, you know? Yeah. So have you decided if you're going to Bowen?
2: I'm going to be at Bowen. I'll be at the uh, UALR Law School. Um,
1: Are you going to do the joint program? Uh,
2: yeah. Yeah. That's, so I'm at the Clinton School finishing my first year. It's kind of a, it's a different way about doing it because I applied to the Clinton School first because I knew it was going to be a great reason for me to come back to Arkansas. I mean, there's many places around the country where I can do law. And so, but there was only one Clinton School. Applied to the other Clinton School, start it there. Most people who do the joint program start at Bowen. I'm going to have to do uh, my career after the Clinton School is going to be basically all at Bowen. Um, i do maybe a little bit on the side at the Clinton School still, but most of it will be at Bowen from here and out. From the advice I've gotten from friends, they're like, you know, you need to be able to go to a program that will give you some flexibility, work with you, and it's not going to be that expensive that you can get out and do the practice you want to do. And I was just like, yeah, I kind of really want to focus my work on some things that may not pay a lot of money, but will give me a lot more rewarding experience. I wanna have those, that opportunity to be open to that so I don't have to make sacrifices. I can just focus on serving people who and do the kind of law that will allow me to do effectively serve the people that are, you know, I've been serving for a while. So and and also then expand it out to do other work and do some innovative things. I'm I'm looking at it as an opportunity to do something for myself as well as do something for others and to expand my work and make me more effective.
1: Well, I'm glad go into Bowen. I'm um, I'm a graduate of Bowen and it's a really good school, great value. And Terry Biner, the dean, is amazing. <laughs> she's yeah. she's taught me Civ pro or well, she tried to teach me Civ Pro. I would like to go back now. <laughs> Now that I, I know the importance of civil procedure.
2: Well, it's fun. I get to spend so much time in Bowen anyway. That's where I usually study. And so it's uh, it's like, you know, you start hanging around attorneys. You start becoming an attorney and, you know, you want to become an attorney. You start hanging around law students. You start wanting to become a law student. So I've I considered this just another osmosis experience.
1: All right. Well, we've been going for almost two hours now. I'm sure it's been recording. So we'll see what happens. All right. Definitely. Well, have a great weekend.
2: Great, thank you. Thanks, Andrea. All right, bye.
1: Bye.